Well, today we're going to continue a series that we started a few weeks ago, uh, and we actually are, uh, I think, I think <laughs> I'm going to be uh, sensitive about this. I, I don't know for sure, because I've learned that if I tell you that I know what I'm preaching about next Sunday, God usually laughs at me. So I think that we're done with this series after today, but, but who knows, right, <laughs> right Liz? <laughs> uh, so... For the last few weeks, though, we have been walking through a series where we've been asking the question, how is it that Jesus was able to hold his peace uh, as he was on his road to the cross? And we have said that, of course, Jesus was able to hold his peace because he is the son of God and he's the prince of peace. But we also have remembered that Jesus was 100% human being. And so there were also some spiritual disciplines, some practices that he engaged in that we want to learn from. We want to follow the example of how did Jesus model what it looked like to be a man of peace and so that we can be men and women of peace as well in a world where not only is, are, are we surrounded by the chaos of the world and not only do we have all kinds of other things trying to pull our focus away from Jesus, uh, but you know we also live in a world where we've been told by Jesus himself to take up our own cross and to follow him. And so we're trying to figure out how to live in this world. We're also trying to figure out what it looks like to die in this world as well, uh, to die to the world and to live with Christ. Amen? Amen? So, so far in this series, we've talked about how Jesus practiced solitude and silence, how he practiced all kinds of prayer. Last week, we talked about the discipline of Sabbath, which turns out isn't just a discipline. It's also the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And we, we heard that Sabbath is actually a gift for us, that there should be something positive about Sabbath. It's not just a day like what I used to think as I was a kid, that you just sit in a dark room, you can light one candle, uh, and, and if it goes out, can't do the work to relight it. Uh, it's actually a day of joy and delight and, and, and full life. Well, today, of all Sundays, today is a day uh, where it feels a little bit like a party. Next Sunday will also feel like a party. You think about the days where we really are throwing down and celebrating who Jesus is. It's days like today. And so we felt like today would be a good day to look at the discipline of celebration as we are ending this series on Palm Sunday. Now, you might not have known that celebration was a discipline, but today my goal is to talk to you a little bit about some of the benefits and maybe even to prove to you from Scripture that this is a discipline. This is something that we are told to engage in regularly. So uh, let's, let's back up for just a minute as we've done during this series and let's define our term. Let's talk about what we're talking about for a moment. Uh, if you were to read the, the Oxford Dictionary definition of the word celebration, celebration is defined as the action of marking one's pleasure at an important event or occasion by engaging in enjoyable, typically social activity. The idea about celebration, even in the secular understanding of it, is that you usually don't do it alone, that it's something that you're allowed to enjoy, uh, and that it marks special occasions. And then Dallas Willard, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, he writes that celebration is the completion of worship, for it dwells on the greatness of God as shown in his goodness to us. We engage in celebration when we enjoy ourselves, our life, our world, in conjunction with our faith and confidence in God's greatness, beauty, and goodness. 
That's a mouthful, but basically celebration is supposed to be fun, and it's supposed to be because of and about God, right? So Now, we do this kind of thing all the time without even thinking about it, without even realizing that what we're doing, we might not call it celebration, you might just call it going to a party, right? That's a way of celebration in the world. We, we engage in the discipline of celebration when we recognize God's beauty in creation out in the world. I was just talking to a friend. We were having coffee on Friday, and he was telling me about all the different places that he's been to around the state of California. And he's, he's new to the state, and so he's kind of just driving all over the place. And he's a single guy, so he just can kind of see that, oh, it's, this place looks beautiful. I'm just going to drive there spontaneously. He was telling me about a time that he drove all the way up past Sacramento to go to a place uh, just in one day and then drove all the way home and just to, just to see something uh, of, of nature. That is the discipline of celebration. I just want to see something beautiful that God created, Right? Uh, he, he was telling me about, uh, about how he went to uh, the devil's punch bowl and just saw this hole in the ground. But while he was looking at a hole in the ground, he was amazed at how good God is. And then he goes, but that was nothing compared to the time I went to the Grand Canyon when I was driving from home all the way to here for, to, in California with my parents. And my mom yelled at me, he said, because he said, I, I, I'm the kid still. He's an adult. He's a grown man. And he, he, he was like kind of hopping down the little side of the cliff. He's like, I'm like a human pack mule. And, uh, and he was telling me about how his mom was threatening to put him on one of those leashes, the harness leashes, you know. He's like, mom, I'm in my mid-20s. And she goes, I do not care, Right? <laughs> But he was just so overwhelmed with wanting to celebrate the goodness of God's creation. We begin to see creation uh, or celebration of, of creation and life in general and God's goodness in our life uh, in places like Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, we see this, this line. It says, there is an occasion for everything. There's a time for every activity under heaven. If you read the rest of that, you see 14 different lines, 28 different juxtaposed ideas of what it is time to do. For example, there's a time to give birth and a time to die. It says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Laugh is a celebration term. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Dance is a celebration term. I just can't help myself. My, I, I practiced uh, some soccer drills with my daughter, Hannah. She wants to play soccer now. And so I, I know a little bit about soccer, just a little bit about soccer. And, uh, and so we were out at the park the other day practicing some drills, and we were doing some lunges, and we were, we were doing this drill called suicides, which you run back and forth a bunch of times, and it's just... <sighs> anyway, my legs are feeling a little noodly today, um, and, and yet I just can't help myself during worship to dance with you and with Jesus because he's been so good to us. This is, a, this is a celebration idea. And today, when we get together in church, it should be a celebration. Amen? I've got a friend who pastors a church, and he says every Sunday should feel like the Super Bowl. Every single Sunday should feel like an opportunity where God's people get together, and we throw a party to celebrate how good God is. Right? Amen? So we want to talk about this today. The discipline of celebration is about knowing what time it is and acting accordingly. Maybe, it, maybe you've been in a time to mourn, and maybe you're in a time to dance. Maybe you've been in a time to weep, and maybe it's time to laugh. Maybe. Maybe just know what time it is. Can I just put a preface here and say, if you have a friend 
and it's their time to mourn or their time to weep. Wisdom says we mourn and we weep with those who are mourning and weeping. But wisdom also says we learn to laugh and learn to dance with those who are laughing and dancing. That we can help each other and honor each other in this journey. And if you've ever been through a grief moment, sometimes you know that some of the most healing moments in your grieving, your weeping, and your mourning is when someone comes in and they grieve and they weep and they mourn with you. And then all of a sudden at some point somebody says something and you're just laughing. Some of the most healing moments in our grief can come through celebration of the life that we're remembering as we are, uh, as we are still even grieving the loss of that life. In fact, a, a funeral service, a memorial service done well is, in fact, a celebration of life. I love telling people at funerals, whenever I get to officiate a memorial service, I tell them the eulogy is actually rooted in a word which means praise. And so when you hear a eulogy, you're actually hearing the praise of their life. That's why when they read a eulogy, they tell you about their legacy, their lineage, and all the people that are still here living in honor and of the memory of this person. They don't tell you about all the dark stuff. It's not because we're pretending that the dark stuff never happened. It's because we're praising this person's life. Right? That's what a eulogy is all about. And celebration is a discipline exactly because it doesn't always feel like we should be celebrating. Or you don't always feel like you want to celebrate. But sometimes we call this a discipline because sometimes Celebration is just the right thing to do. In other words, like the author of Ecclesiastes says, sometimes it's just time to celebrate. It's just time. You've got a time to celebrate once a year. We call that your birthday. It's just time to celebrate you. Whether you like it or not, we're going to do that. Right? I have some friends who are like, don't celebrate my birthday. And we always just say, it's too bad. Too bad. We're going to. We'll try to do it in a way that doesn't embarrass you maybe just a little bit, but we'll celebrate you. But like Dallas Willard says, we engage in the discipline of celebration when we enjoy ourselves, our life, and our world in ways that are connected to our faith in, as he says, God's greatness, beauty, and goodness. And throughout scripture, we see a wide range of examples of celebration. In fact, let's take a look at a few right now. Uh, as we look even at the beginning of the story in Scripture, we see that God celebrated his own work in creation. Did you know that God patted himself on the back? Right? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, Then God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. This is God's book about God's work in the world. He looked over all that he had created, and he went, That was very good. If I do say so myself, good job, me. And then it says this, and evening passed and the morning came, uh, marking the sixth day. So creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed on the seventh day. Remember we talked about Sabbath last week? On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day. Blessing, by the way, is a celebration adjacent word. God blessed the seventh day and he declared it holy because it was the day when God rested from all of his creation. I want you to understand that celebration is directly tied to the discipline of Sabbath. 
This is why we were able to preach that message last week. Sabbath is about Sabbath delight. Rest is supposed to be joy-filled. We rest from our work so we can enjoy God's creation just like God did on the very first day. Another place in scripture where we see uh, God engaging in celebration and encouraging celebration is, actually, it's, it's all over the place in the Old Testament. Did you know that there are seven feasts that the Jewish people were meant to honor and celebrate every single year? They are Passover, the celebration of unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the seventh is booths or tabernacles, depending on how you feel about naming it. And each of these festivals came with specific instructions about how the people of God were supposed to celebrate that, uh, that feast or that festival. So seven times a year, these people were supposed to throw a party. They're supposed to have a celebration. God's people were commanded to do it. The Passover, for example, was a celebration of God delivering the Israelites out of Egypt. If you've read the story or maybe seen the cartoon movie, you know that in Exodus chapter 12 or at about the like 40-minute mark of the movie, uh, the, the, the people of Israel are told to stay inside. And it says in verse 8 of Exodus 12, stay inside and eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Now, the meat that they were supposed to eat was a lamb, a spotless lamb that they would have killed and then taken the blood of the lamb and wiped it over the doorframe of their house. And then, and, then, and then that was to mark that they, were, they knew they were on the inside of God's plan and agreement to save his people and rescue them from slavery in Egypt. In fact, it goes on starting in verse 12. It says, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Now, I wanted to include that verse in there because I want you to understand uh, that it is God's job to decide who gets judgment. Just like it was also God's job to decide how we get delivered. Right? So we let God handle the judgment. That's his business. Thank you very much. But then in verse 13, it says, The blood will be a sign for you on, on your houses that you... That, on the houses where you are, sorry, I can read, I promise, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destruction will pl or plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. Remember this. Throw a party about this every year. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And so Passover is the celebration of God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. And we understand that there's something somber about this celebration, right? It took death to earn this party. And of course, obviously, also the Israelites are going to be having some portion of their heart feel somber and heaviness about this as they celebrate the Passover because they're going to remember the names of the people of their tribes who did not ever make it out of Egypt. But it's a party because God's people got delivered. And as Christians, we continue to this day to celebrate the Passover because we also have received the blood of the Lamb 
Not painted over the doorframe of your house, but painted over the doorframe of your heart so that you, as you have welcomed in the Messiah, will be passed over by God's judgment. You can receive God's presence and his peace. Every single time we take communion, we just did this as a practice last Sunday. Elijah led us in communion. And as we do that, we commemorate the somberness of Christ's death. We might even feel a heaviness in our heart as we think about the sins that we have committed and about those who have not yet made a decision to come alive in Christ. But we also enjoy the freedom of our own slavery to sin. We're free people. This is a celebration. Communion is a party. Right? And we eat and we drink because it's a party. Speaking of eating and drinking, God actually seemed to really enjoy telling people to eat and drink as a way to celebrate. For example, another place in scripture that we see celebration happening or being commanded is that God actually told the people to plan a celebration every time that they were celebrating a good harvest. And they were actually meant to tithe on their harvest. Tithe is 10%. And the principle of tithing in scripture, you see that you take the first 10% of, of, of what you earn what you make and you give that to God. And here's how he told the people of Israel to celebrate their good harvest. They were supposed to bring their tithe of their harvest to Jerusalem. But listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 14, starting in verse 24. He says, if the distance is too great for you to carry it, in other words, if you live too far away to Jerusalem and cars haven't been invented yet, which was everyone who originally read this, if the distance is too great for you to carry it, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, and since the Lord your God has blessed you. In other words, if, if you live far away from Jerusalem, and he's blessed you enough that you can't just tell your kids, hey, pick up the tithe and we're just all going to carry it between our family in, in our two arms each, then here's what I want you to do. If God has blessed you so much and you don't live in Jerusalem, then exchange it for silver. Take the silver in your hand. Because so, you can't carry all the stuff, but you can carry money, right? So take the, the money or the silver in your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses. In other words, go to Jerusalem with the money. Verse 26, you may spend the silver on anything you want. That's an interesting phrase. He does put a little bit of a stipulation on it, right? Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything that you desire. Is wine and beer in the Bible? Huh. We'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> Listen to what he says. Once you buy this meal, you are to feast there. You are to say feast. You are to feast. You know what I picture when I when I think of feast? I think about the ribs that my wife made on our on our smoker last week. Oh, I want like 17 racks of those ribs <laughs> with, some, with some cornbread, right? Because it's a party. I'm not being, it's a party. My whole family's got to eat 17 racks of ribs, right? Some cornbread, some baked beans, right? Oh, mm. Some of that, some of that like really good, like 
cinnamon, apple spice, like, you know, the, with the apple wedges and stuff that you could get at, like, Famous Dave's back in the day when there used to be a Famous Dave's in town. You remember that stuff, right? That was, like, dessert, and they would put it on your main course plate. That's a feast. Feast. In the presence of the Lord. Do you know how you, know how you feast in the presence of the Lord? Exactly the way I eat ribs every time I eat ribs. You take the ribs, never with a fork. Right? And you, and you take the ribs and you go, and you come away and, like, there's barbecue sauce everywhere. And because you're, trying to, you're eating in the presence of the Lord, you don't meet, leave any meat on the bones, right? I have to educate my children. Hannah had some ribs. She ate it off the bone like a good girl. Um, but she left some meat on the bone, and I, I, you, you, got, you got to pull these kids in and teach them how to honor Jesus. Eat these ribs in the presence of the Lord, kid. You can't leave anything on the bone. This is a feast in the presence of the Lord, right? You eat all the food, right? You eat it in the presence of the Lord, and as you eat the ribs, you go, thank you, God, that this animal died so that I can enjoy this moment. Oh, you're so good. Thank you for barbecue sauce, God. Mm. And then you rejoice with your family. You know what rejoice with your family sounds like? It sounds like laughter at a table. It sounds like when my family gets together and I'm married to a woman who has a twin sister, Cheryl, who's up here leading us in worship, and my wife, Sharon, who's back there, uh, they are twin sisters. And when we get together with our family, the two of them will tell the same 30 stories over and over and over. And, and something about the way they tell these stories, though, like simultaneously annoys you to the point where you laugh because you've heard this story a billion times. And you know what story is coming next, but you love to be in the moment because you know what? These are our stories. This is the story of our family, and you know what's great? You know what I've noticed a trend? Is that it used to be stories of all the times that Sharon and Cheryl had before me and Danny were around, and me and Danny have been in the mix now for a couple decades, and we've been causing a bit of a kerfuffle in this family, and now some of these stories about me. And I'd wear that as a badge of honor. These are our stories. That's what it sounds like to feast in the presence of the Lord and to rejoice with your family. And I love verse 27, maybe just because I'm a pastor. It says, do not neglect the Levite within your city gates since he has no portion or inheritance among you. So the Levites were like the pastors, the priests, the, the church workers of the day. And they were actually obligated by God not to have any allotment of land for themselves so they couldn't grow their own ribs. <laughs> and so... As a, as a way to honor the, the Levites and the priests, they would say, hey, we, we, we saved rack number 17 for you, right? And maybe some of them, actually, there was a tradition that they would either invite the priest to come and feast with them, or they would say, hey, we know we just wanted to make sure that we honored you for the way that you're honoring the Lord. I love the way that honor and fun and, and life is just baked into the idea of honoring God with the tithe to say, thank you, God, you have blessed us with this portion. Let's throw a party. Kind of paints a new picture, doesn't it, when you read at the end of the Old Testament where it says, bring the tithe into the storehouse so that there would be enough for you. Right? So that there would be enough for you. It's, it's pretty good. 
Let's talk about a third way that we see revelation in the Bible. In fact, we started at the beginning. Let's go to the end. In Revelation chapter 19, we see that in Revelation 19, Babylon falls. Babylon is, uh, was a physical city at one point, but it also is a representation of the systems and societies of the world that continue to try to enslave us uh, and lead us into sin. Babylon falls, and in Revelation 19, starting in verse 6, it says, Then I heard something like a voice of a vast multitude like the sound of cascading waters, like a, like a rumbling of a loud thunder. And here's what that voice, that vast multitude was saying. Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. This party is good. And this is the party that Jesus has been waiting for for all of eternity. And one day, if you love Jesus and join the family, then you and I will get to sing that song at the end of the story and the beginning of the rest of eternity. That's a good song. That's a party. That's a celebration. Celebration is seen, even commanded throughout the entire Bible from the beginning to the end of time when God uh, often is seen in this world as being stuffy and boring. We're actually missing the point. We're missing this huge part of who God actually is. He absolutely is serious about life and death. But he also, I think, is seriously fun. I think he seriously values celebration. And I think oftentimes it is the rule of God that enjoys, it allows us to enjoy the life and the celebration with God. Amen? So celebration of God's goodness is an act of worship and freedom. The discipline of celebration is an important part of our spiritual formation. In other words, celebration actually helps us become more like the God we are celebrating. This is even like in the secular business world. They'll tell people, you become what you celebrate because you value what you celebrate. Right? If you want to create a culture that is fun, you celebrate things in fun ways. If you want to create a culture that is honest, you celebrate every time someone tells the truth, right? Okay, so that's it. Can I, can I just talk about wine and beer for a second? Because that was in the Bible. We need to talk about it. So it's important that we clarify that celebration is not permission to relax the rules around righteousness. And it is also not pretending that there's no pain in our lives. It's, it's neither of those things. Drunkenness is not a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, we're encouraged not to become drunk with wine. But there is this context here that Scripture will say, hey, you want to get some wine and some beer for your party? Get some wine and some beer for your party. Now, I am not up here telling you that at Life Church, if you drink wine and beer, you can't be a member of this church. I'm not up here telling you that. I'm also not encouraging you to go out from church right now and go buy some wine and beer just so that you can enjoy your freedoms. Be wise. Don't be foolish. Okay, so I, I will t- let me, can, can I tell you the, the real real for a second? I'm not going to go out of here and buy wine and, and beer for my party. 
because I come from a family where wine and beer is not a good idea for us to bring to the table, right? So I don't bring the wine and the beer to the table, except like for very rare, very special occasions in the context of people who know my story and would never let me do anything but have like one glass of something under very rare, very special occasions. And it will be like 99.9% .9 chance that none of you will ever, 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 ever see me drinking alcohol. It's not because you're not very special or very rare. It's just because I know my story. And I do know what God has set me free from in my family. I personally have never struggled with alcohol, but I'd like to not to. So I'm going to be wise about the way even that I celebrate. Do you see how celebration doesn't give me permission to be a fool? Right? So you decide what celebration looks like that feels like freedom, but also doesn't look like foolishness. Okay, can I, can I get back to my message now? Wise people of life, church. All right. Please, ne just one more thing. Never, because I will come for you. Never tell your friends, oh, I can drink alcohol now because my pastor used it as an illustration in a sermon. Don't tell your friends that I will come for you. It's just, it's not helpful. It's not helpful. Talk about Jesus. Drink iced tea. Okay, now. Let's get back to our sermon series. Let's talk about the way that Jesus engages in celebration. I think that there is probably no clearer demonstration of Jesus engaging in the discipline of celebration than in John chapter 2. There was a wedding, and Jesus had some disciples already at this time. He had his friends hanging out, following it. He was in the beginning of his public ministry, and it hadn't even really kicked off yet. He's just kind of rallying the crew, and Jesus and his friends had been invited to a wedding, and a city called Cana, and his mommy was there, and his mommy was hanging out at this party, and mom found out that they had run out of wine, and in a Jewish wedding that lasted for about a week, if the wine runs out, party's over, and the longer you can get your party to go, the more honor your family has. This is actually part of the, part of the way that we saw the celebration, okay, and so the wine ran out, and Mary goes, Oh no, too soon. And so like a good Jewish mom, she intervened. And she steps in and she goes to the servants and she says, do whatever Jesus says. And Jesus is like, woman, it's not my time yet. Chill out. And so she turns to the servants and says, just do whatever Jesus says. And like a good Jewish son, he obeyed. And so this is, there's a lot more to that story. And if I had a different uh, a sermon just on that, we dig into all of that moment. We have done that in the past. But let's pick up the story in verse 6 of John chapter 2. So it says, now six stone jars had been set there for the Jewish purification not for the party. You understand? They were for purification. Man, there's so many layers of meaning into this, but I just want to get this one observation out of here. So it says, each of them contained 20 or 30 gallons. He says, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take them to the headmaster, the head waiter, the guy, the MC, the guy in charge of the party. And, he, and so they did. When the head waiter, waiter tested the water after it had become wine, notice they want you to know it's not water anymore. When he tested what he thought was going to be water, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they did know. And he called the groom and he told, so he get, Jesus doesn't even get credit for this miracle. 
He called the groom, and he told him, everyone sets out their fine wine first. Then, after, after the people are drunk, then they set out the inferior. Never put that to the test. It's, it's in the Bible. It's not advice. It's descriptive. Okay? All right. But he's saying, once the people can't tell the difference, then they put out the, the stuff that's not as good. Right? Okay. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, I'm telling you, there are so many layers of meaning in this story. I just want to draw this out, though. Isn't it interesting that the first of Jesus' public miracles was to help a wedding party not have to end? It almost, if you don't understand all of the layers of meaning of how prophetically dynamic this miracle moment actually was in the big story of the people of Israel and the setup for Jesus' ministry publicly, if you don't fully understand that, you can almost look at it and go, wine at a wedding? Really? You're going to waste your first miracle on something like that? Seems a little, it seems almost like frivolous. Jesus, are you just being flashy or showy? And we know, of course not. But isn't it amazing that one component of this, this miracle, of Jesus launching his public ministry, was to make wine at a wedding party. Jesus didn't come into the wedding late. Oh, we're celebrating today, are we? Okay, we'll just see about that. Stephen's drunk. I'm going to put an end to this party. And the wine runs out, and Mary comes over and says, the wine has run out. And Jesus goes, well, good. <laughs> we sort of expect Jesus to do that. Right? Well, I thought these people were having too much fun anyway. Fun. I'll show them real fun. Here's a harp. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do this. Because Jesus somehow viewed the wedding celebration as being of enough value that he wanted it to continue. Yes, I know for my theological students in the room, yes, there are sermons series upon series that you could dig into in the meaning. But don't miss the blessing in the middle of the theological meaning. The party doesn't have to be over. Jesus begins his public ministry with a wedding. And do you know how his ministry is going to end? With another wedding. You get to be the bride. And this party will never end. Why? Because of the blood, wine, of Jesus. It's good. If I was sitting right there, listening to that sermon point, I would have just lost my mind right now. I'm just saying, that was good. It's okay, you don't have to placate me now. The celebration of discipline is about marking all of the ways that Jesus has brought us into free and enjoyable life. Free life, say free, and enjoyable life, say enjoyable. Oh, I love that word. You should enjoy your life. Enjoy it. The devil wants you to feel shame. The devil wants you to feel bad about your life. The devil wants your life with Jesus to be, to be boring. He is terrified every time you do something with God and you think, oh, that was fun. You know why? Because you're going to want to do it again. 
So none of that. Let's keep it boring. Let's keep church stuffy. Let's make sure that everyone falls asleep. There's a time to sleep. And there's a time to be awake. Okay. So let's remember for a moment as we begin to move slowly maybe slower than you want me to, towards the end of this message. Let's remember that celebration is good for us. Celebration is like planting a seed that produces good fruit in our lives. I love this. My friend Marcus was just telling me this morning that he was talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, you know what's interesting about the way the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit is it doesn't say that the fruit of the Spirit uh, will take a long, long time over the course of your entire life to grow. The fruit of the Spirit are talked about in a way that seems almost as if you're handed a full fruit. Right? Joy, peace, patience. You just get it. Right? There's something about celebration that helps us to grow up, something of, of a benefit in our life. And I, I think I could share with you very quickly three things that grow up in our life as we practice the discipline of celebration. They are family, freedom, and faith. We see that family, celebration produces family. This is the kind of unity that is built among people who celebrate together. Think about the birthday parties that you've gone to. You feel like a sense of belonging. Ever been at a surprise party? Man, there is so much unity that happens at a surprise party that if even one guy parks in the wrong place, we're like, Brian, you parked in the wrong place. Everybody gets mad at Brian when he doesn't park in the right place. There's unity at a party, right? Graduation parties, we all came for one thing, right? No one's ever gone to a graduation party and like, what are we celebrating today? We all know. Wedding receptions, it's a good party. We're celebrating the beginning of a marriage. Something came alive in that moment. It's worth throwing a party for, right? But it brings us together. The discipline of celebration has belonging baked right into it. One of our four core values here at Life Church is we all belong. Do you know how we exemplify that we all belong? We come together once a week and we celebrate Jesus. So when we celebrate Christ, we're joining a party of billions of people. Scripture uses the language of a body and a family a ton. Listen to how Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this idea. Hebrews 10, starting verse 19, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, this is family language, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Doesn't this sound like you should be celebrating this? I used to read this like it was some stuffy, boring theological paradigm. No, brothers and sisters, we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus? Really? He's inaugurated us for a new and living way through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, with open hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some people are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know what he's telling us to do? Go to church, and when you go to church, act like it is a party, not some kind of stuffy ritual, but as a family celebration about Jesus. 
The discipline of celebration is one of the ways that we commit to fighting against isolation and loneliness. If you feel isolated, I'm going to say this to my friends who join us, and have, some of you have been joining us for over two years online now. If you feel isolated, celebrate something and don't do it alone. If you need to meet me at a park so we can celebrate, let's celebrate something. Even if what we celebrate is, hey, we got to the park and we're alive. It's worth, you are worth celebrating. You woke up today. You are worth celebrating. The life you have in Christ is worthy of celebration. Do it together. Celebration produces family. It also produces freedom. Celebration is rooted in freedom, but it also helps us get free. Think about Acts chapter 16. Silas, Paul, preached the gospel the religious leaders of the day, they don't like it, so what do they do? Throw them in prison. It says in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were sulking and licking their wounds and deciding that they were going to be burned out and resigned from ministry. <laughs> Sorry, it's my journal from 2020. Um, it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake. You didn't know the Bible was in Southern California. There was, there was a violent earthquake. It was so violent that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains came loose. Did you notice? Did you notice how a commitment to praise God in the middle of prison got them free and also had a trickle-down effect of freedom to the people around them? Freedom is contagious through praise. Praise is a form of celebration. At Life Church, we say this often, free people worship. Free people worship. Even when it looks and feels like we are bound up by something, worship and praise and celebration is something free people do, but it's also something that produces freedom in us and for those around us who would listen in, who would listen in. Let your life be a praise to Jesus so that others would go, what is it that's different about you? And they will hear you singing the song of freedom in Jesus and themselves be set free. Celebration produces freedom. If you are experiencing bondage today, don't complain. Celebrate. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but you don't know how hard it is, Tim. I understand that it's hard. I'm not trying to say that it's not. I empathize with you. I'm telling you the road forward. I'm not telling you to pretend like it didn't hurt. I'm not telling you to say it never happened. I'm not asking you to lie or cover at all. I'm inviting you to celebrate. Let's go to number three. I had a lot more to say there, but you would want to eat lunch today. Celebration produces family. It produces freedom. And thirdly, it produces faith. Celebration actually helps us mark good moments as a gift from God. Like my friend I was telling you about at the beginning of this message who just walks outside into the wilderness. He goes to the Devil's Punch Bowl or the Grand Canyon. And he just marks the moment. It's a memory for him because he remembers, I was there. This was real. It actually happened. I saw the goodness of God. 
And those marked moments of celebration, they make memories. And then you get to draw on those like a bank account that never runs dry in the bad moments, when you need it the most. As we look back on the past faithfulness of God, it helps us to have faith in the present and the future faithfulness of God. So again, looking back on good days helps us believe that there will be good, more good days ahead. And I think Jesus is the ultimate image for this. And consider the challenge that's found in Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Running is hard. <laughs> Let us run with endurance. Don't quit. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. What did that say? He understood joy while he was on the cross. What joy? The joy that was laid before him. And so as a result, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Not pretending it didn't hurt, but despising it. One translation gives the idea that it says, making a mockery of the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus obviously knew that his father was going to be faithful because he obviously knew that his father had already been faithful. And he had a bigger image of faithfulness than we have because he's eternal. But the way that we are able to see the faithfulness of God in our dark moments is to practice the discipline of celebration in our bright moments so that you can draw on that like an anchor holding you to the goodness and the faithfulness of God when the storm is at its worst. When we mark moments of celebrating God's goodness, we are making memories that we can draw on in hard moments, and then that builds up our faith and our hope that maybe, definitely, certainly, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that good days are coming my way. Not because of anything I'm going to do, but because of something Jesus has already done. Amen? So we practice celebration when we do things like, I'm just going to give you some practical tips now. We practice celebration when we do things like recognizing other people's good works and accomplishments. When I said that point to my wife earlier, she said, make sure that they hear you say recognizing people's good work and accomplishments without any expectation that do, they do the same for you. Because there is nothing worse than a friend who says, hey, remember all those times I gave you a gift? How come you didn't? right? Remember all those times I complimented you? I'm not your friend anymore because you didn't reciprocate. Like that just puts you in an impossible situation. There's no way to even get out of that. They've already made up their mind about you. So don't do that to people. Celebrate people because they're worthy of celebrating. Not because you're trying to manipulate them into celebrating you. Because what that points to is actually you have a need and you're trying to use them to fill it. That's not true celebration. That's abuse. Whew. All right, got a little heavy in a sermon about celebration. I didn't mean to get so heavy there, but that's really, really important. So how do we celebrate? We recognize people's good work and accomplishments. So this can look as simple as saying, hey, well done. I saw that you did a good job today. I told my daughters about this point, and, and one of them said, giving fist bumps. Okay. Fist bump, celebration, give a fist bump. Or throw a, throw a party. Someone gets a promotion at work, throw a promotion party. Somebody retires, throw them a party. You lived, hooray, you outlived your job. Well done. 
right? We celebrate weddings or birthdays. Sometimes we have to get creative. I remember Selah was the first person in our family who had to have a drive-by birthday party in 2020. You know what she did? She said, I'm going to make sure everybody in my family feels like they are celebrated on their birthday, just like I felt celebrated by people driving by my house. So she made it a habit. For two years, a little over two years, in fact, she made Selah's birthday show. And she would go in her room, and she would just film a little thing that was like, hey, we're so happy. It's your birthday. We love you so much. Here's all the people in your family who sent in videos to tell you that they love you. And it would just be a montage video of clips of people who had texted in videos and said, hey, happy birthday. I love you. And I remember when my birthday came around, and I just spent the whole time just crying in my living room watching this. And, and like all my friends and family that had come to this party were sitting there just watching me cry while watching a video of some of them tell me uh, already before they even showed up to the party that they loved me. Eventually her cousin Angelina got in on it and the two of them just started making happy birthday videos because they just wanted to make sure that everyone knew they were celebrated. Celebrate people. Their life matters. You made it a year? Years are hard these days. You did one. <laughs> Happy birthday. That felt real, right? <laughs> that, could, that got you deep. Oh, I felt that in my soul. Years are hard these days. Here's another way. Practically, this one's so easy. Lean into laughter. Don't do that thing where you text LOL when you know you didn't laugh out loud. Actually, LOL. Or call them back. Like, <laughs> that was a good one. You hear me LOLing right now? Actually, like lean into laughter. Man, there are times when I'm feeling just the heaviness of the world, and there are a couple of comedians that don't make me feel like I have to repent after I listen to them crack jokes. I'll just go listen to some stand-up comedy. I'll just go watch a silly show, or I'll just go hang out with my daughters because they're goofballs. Or I'll just drive over to Mark Rondeau's house because that dude cannot go 24 hours serious. <laughs> I just need to be around my goofy Canadian friends sometime. I just need to lean into laughter. Just lean into it. Just lean into it. I'm not asking you to be a stand-up comic. None of us are that funny. But just be silly. Parents, let your hair down. Be silly. Get on the floor. Play the game. Step on the Lego. <laughs> do the fun. Okay, that part wasn't fun, but do the fun. You know what I'm saying? Old people, older people, seasoned saints in the Lord, Tell us your stories. The things you have experienced, we need to hear them. I love nothing more than a person who's been alive for twice as long as me. Tell me something that I didn't even know was possible. I, just, I love these crazy stories. I'm thinking about stories that Dave Kingsley used to tell me, just had me rolling. Man's been with Jesus for a long time now, but he had lived for a long time when he was telling me these stories. I told you a couple weeks ago about Dirk Pilgrim and J.J. Johnson, who would take me fishing when I was a kid, told me crazy stories. Yes, I heard the story about how Dirk cut his thumb off. And I don't know why I thought it was hilarious. 
Lean into laughter. Here's another one. Write cards. Write letters. Send the message to thank people for their presence in your life. Celebrate. I'm so glad you're breathing air and that we know each other. That means something to me. Celebrate that. And then last, make church community a weekly and even daily part of your life. Now, what I didn't say there is come and sit and listen to a guy talk to you once a week. Make church community a weekly and even daily part of your life. Celebrate the life that God gave you and don't do it alone. Ultimately, as we wrap this thing up, I would say ultimately, the discipline of celebration is about looking for and enjoying the work of God in our lives. It's about looking for and enjoying the work of God around us in the world. Celebration is the gift of enjoying the presence of Jesus. Just like the celebration of welcoming Jesus on Palm Sunday that we heard Arlene read to us earlier today. Celebrating Palm Sunday invites us to ask a a very important question to ourselves. The question of whether or not we have invited and welcomed Jesus into our own lives or or if there is any part of our lives that we have hidden away from Jesus as if we could hide from him. If there's a place where we still need to invite and welcome him in. And through praise we welcome him in as the Lord and the Savior and the King of our lives. Celebration is the way that we, we welcome Jesus in. And a day like today and talking about the discipline of celebration and of on all Sundays, Palm Sunday, the question is, have you? Have you celebrated the presence of Jesus to such an extent that he has become the King of your life? Are there any places or parts of your heart or your life where you have yet to welcome Jesus to be King and Lord? Can we close in a moment of prayer? I just want to invite you to take a moment to pray in silence. Those questions that I just asked you might make you realize that you have something to say to Jesus. And just in a moment of complete silence in this room, I just want to give you an opportunity to say anything to God that you feel like you need to say. You don't need to say it out loud. You can talk to God right where you are sitting. Take a moment and pray anything you need to say to Jesus now. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your presence in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. I just I, I want to lead you in a in a prayer together. Can we do a call and response prayer? It's just just one of those old school church kind of repeat after me prayer moments. But this might be a an eternally significant moment for you if you have never prayed a prayer to commit your life to Jesus. This would be the moment where you would make that decision, or maybe you realize, you know what? There's a part of my heart where I haven't fully invited Jesus to be King and Lord of my life. We're going to pray this prayer together. I'm just going to go one line at a time, and then I'm going to invite you to repeat those words after me. But because this is a day of celebration, I might yell it a little bit. So feel like you can respond and pray and and shout this prayer as loud as you want to. If this is a somber moment for you, we're, we're going to honor that as well. So you don't feel like you have to match my intensity. I'm just really excited about what Jesus is doing today. All right? So here's what we'll say. Jesus... You are the living King of Kings. You are the Savior of the world. 
I welcome you into my life today to be my king and my savior. Set me free from sin. Unite me with your church and build up my faith in you. I welcome you. I celebrate you. Help me to practice celebration so that I can come back to you in praise every day. Amen. Can you say thank you to Jesus for his goodness and his faithfulness in your life? Amen.